Thank you, Mrs. White. It's lovely. Good morning, everyone. How are we today? Very good. You're looking very fine. Thank you very much. Wasn't that lovely to have a time of worship? Maybe a little more later. How would you think about that? There's a battery up there. I don't know if this is a hint. I'm going to give it to Dave because Dave needs more batteries. Do yourself. Okay, so. We are on a series called Kingdom Culture. This is week two. And just by means, I guess, of a little bit of a recap. Last week, what we said was that that different places, which means different organizations and different clubs and different offices and different churches, have their own cultures. And those cultures have clear characteristics, values, behaviors, Sometimes language, have you ever been into a different culture and it's like they're speaking a different language, you think it's English, you're not quite sure. So sometimes places even have their, a unique humour all to their own. And if you're coming in from the outside, sometimes it seems like it's going right over your head. Now sometimes, sometimes that organisational culture is entirely Intentional. It, it, it's careful, it's been crafted, if you like. Sometimes it's been formed by accident. And subtly and carelessly, some rather unfortunate negative traits have crept in through the back door. For example, there are cultures that are like this. There are some that are positive and others that are negative. Some are extremely encouraging. I've been in cultures that are discouraging. Some cultures are warm. Some are cold. Some are fun. Some are serious. Some are constructive. Others actually are destructive. But every organization has its own unique culture and flavor and personality. And you know what, over the last decade, we here have been working overtime to craft a certain culture here at the barn. We, we've been working that soil intentionally and carefully and strategically. We've been ploughing and weeding and fertilising the soil, as it were. Why have we been doing that? The answer is because we have a big dream. Amen. We know we haven't arrived yet. But you know what? We are determined to set the scene for God to move. We're determined to, to open the door wide. We're, we're determined to prepare a way for the King of Glory to come in. Amen. And we know that that harvest will only grow if we prepare exactly the right soil. Now last week I, I painted two pictures. So if Matt could flip up the next slide, please, that would be great. The picture of the farmer's soil and a picture of the gardener's greenhouse. And as I said last week, I, I like to think 
of the barn as being like a greenhouse. And so the questions become, what, what kind of conditions do we have to create? What culture do we have to work to grow the harvest that we are after? I think the danger is that, that in our foolishness, we tolerate par- parable of the soil, rocky and thorny soil, and think we can just plant our seed in that and get perfect results. Natural fact, the reality is you have to work that soil. You have to plough it and weed it and fertilise it until it's fertile. Of harvest, we, we talked last week about setting up the greenhouse with just the right atmospheric environmental conditions and temperature and ventilation and watering to produce the desired crop. Which led, for me at least, to, to an enticing question. That question is this, what could church look like if we fully embrace the kingdom culture that Jesus came to introduce? But the words that grab me are the words fully embrace. What could happen? Do you think we could fulfill that dream? I don't know what dream you have in your heart. I know what dream I have in mine. It's pretty big. Do you think we could have that dream if we fully embrace the kingdom culture that Jesus came to introduce? And that means, by definition, that we're going to have to move away from, tug out the weeds of certain other cultures that are pulling in different directions. So the task of this series is to work our way through the characteristics of kingdom culture as introduced by Jesus, the culture that we long to see around here. This week is the first one, really. We're going to be looking at a culture of grace. In my little barn, in a a bottle uh, statement, it goes something like this. A culture of grace and welcome and acceptance and honour for all. So start with a well-known verse of script. You have it in your bathroom. Oh, actually, that's me. We have it in our bathroom. Galatians 5.22. The fruit of the Spirit is, you can all chant it with me, particularly if you learned it in the NIV. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There we go. Word perfect. Look at that. Do you know what? God does not call us to be more impressive or to be more religious or to be more opinionated but to be more kind and to be more gentle and to be more patient. In fact, I would say that our culture should be defined by Galatians 5, 23. So the question becomes, is that the fruit of this place? Is that what we are known for? Because if it is not, we are doing it wrong. Cast our minds back now to Jesus' ministry. We've said many times, Jesus turned religious thinking upside down. Read the parables. Read the Sermon on the Mount, particularly the Beatitudes. 
You know, gone was the pomp and ceremony, showy outward religion and works of charity. Gone was self-righteousness and arrogant superiority, maneuvering for position in the spiritual court. Out was, was this strict behavioral code that people found impossible to keep, that actually was being used to, to, to control and exploit the weak and marginalized. Instead, the emphasis shifted back to loving and worshipping and honouring God first. Matthew 6.33 Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. The emphasis shifted to to loving your neighbour, to turning the other cheek, to washing their feet. The emphasis shifted from judgment to mercy, from condemnation to forgiveness, and from law to grace. John 1, 14 says, The word became flesh, that's Jesus, the word became flesh and came from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. You know, we think about Jesus and we thought about what he stood for. I'd, I'd make this statement. Jesus stood for and taught and demonstrated radical, extraordinary, life-changing grace. Everywhere he went, every second of every day, in every situation, to every person. And you know what? He did it in various different ways. I'm going to give you four. He did it first of all through his teaching. And he taught that rather than an eye for an eye, we were required now to turn the other cheek. That shift from condemnation to mercy, from judgment, forgiveness, law, grace. He taught us to love our enemies. He taught us to bless those who curse us and to pray for those who persecute us. In the Beatitudes, he said, Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Jesus taught all about grace. The second way he did it was through stories. Now, Jesus told lavish stories of grace. That, you know, to the natural eye, in many ways, they just didn't make sense. Why would you leave the 99 that you have got to go after the one that you haven't got? Why why would you kill the fatted calf for the prodigal after all he'd done rather than for the faithful one who'd stayed at home obeying all that you'd instructed? So though they didn't make sense in many ways, they tell us a huge amount about the Father heart of God. You know, the amazing thing about Jesus' stories of grace, there was no catch. There was no exclusion clause, just pure, unadulterated grace. The third way he did it was through action, what I'm going to call acted out grace. A couple of my favourite stories in the New Testament, the first one is, is the woman caught in adultery. I'd love if we had time to talk through that story today and, and talk about how the religious leaders saw that situation, how Jesus saw that situation, the lens through which he saw that woman and what he said and did as a result. Acted out 
grace. Think about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was despised and hated. This little irritating tax collector who was conning and ripping off his own family. And there's Zacchaeus hiding up a tree so he can see Jesus go by. Jesus bucks the trend. And he calls him down and says, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house for tea today. Again, there's just so much in this acted out grace. In fact, I think it would be fair to say that the Pharisees were shocked at how and when and to whom Jesus displayed his grace. And the fourth way that Jesus demonstrated this radical grace was in what he confronted You know, Jesus ruthlessly attacked all those judgmental voices of religion. You know, those people who who placed impossible legalistic demands and heavy burdens on people, but were themselves self-righteous, hypocritical and proud. Jesus ruthlessly attacked that voice. Now, we shouldn't need to remind ourselves that the gospel hangs on a thread of grace. Romans 3, 23 and 24 says, For everyone has sinned, we all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet God, in his grace, freely makes us right in his sight. Ephesians 1, verse 7, He's so rich in kindness and grace, that he purchased our freedom with the blood of his son and forgave our sins. Hebrews 4.16, So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. and There we will receive his mercy and we will find grace to help us when we need it most. Amen. Amen. So so here's here's the big idea for this morning. Church is supposed to be a haven of grace in a world of ungrace. Do you know what? It's a competitive, dog-eat-dog, survival of the fittest world out there. And it's so often characterized by, by selfishness and unkindness and prejudice and injustice. You know, I I get entertained, I'm not sure that's quite the right word, by the stories that my children, who are teenage boys, come home talking about how they are treated out there in the world and how people behave. Do you know what it is? It's grace-less. I was thinking about it this morning. You know, grace is not the default setting. An example, my uh, my medium-sized boy is a goalkeeper, and he, he's, he's a good goalkeeper, he's an A-team goalkeeper, and he's playing in house matches, and they're practicing with his own team, and the ball flies past him, hits the post, comes back, hits him, smash in the face. What do his own teammates do? They laugh and mock him. His own teammates. We live in a graceless world. You know, our call as recipients of, recipients of grace, thank you, Lord, It is to follow Jesus' example of grace and become agents of grace. Here's the verse. We've looked at it before. Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. 
Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace. That's our title today. Seasoned with salt so that you may know how to answer everyone. So do you know what? Our church's culture should always be full of grace. It should be characterised by, it should be directed by, it should be dripping with grace. If we're going to be recognised for anything around here, let it be our grace. That There's a Rick Warren line that I loved. He says this, if we're going to be accused of anything, he said, and we are, we're going to be accused of all sorts of things. He said, if we're going to be accused of anything, let it be that we just show too much mercy. I love that. Now the sad reality is that Christians are often seen to be ungracious. Rightly or wrongly, like Pharisees, Christians have a reputation for being selfish and narrow-minded and hypocritical and holier than thou. I'm pretty sure out there in the media, I'm pretty sure that's unfair. I'm sure that some are like that, but the majority of Christians I know aren't like that at all. But you know what? The perception is out there. I think that's a real shame. Now, reading reading the New Testament, you cannot fail but notice that sinners ran to Jesus as fast as their little legs could carry them. In fact, the worse people felt about themselves the more likely they were to see Jesus as a refuge. i tell you what my strong conviction is. My strong conviction is people should run in the same way to church. Because church is known to be a haven of grace in a world of ungrace. I want to look this morning at what grace in our culture looks like. I've got 10 points. I'm going to go through them really quickly. Number one, grace looks like this. Grace loves first and asks questions later, not the other way round. Christianity, we know, is based on unconditional, unexpected, undeserved love. That's the value. That's the standard. That's what it should look like to the outsider. Number two, what does grace look like? Great grace doesn't make snap judgment, but chooses grace always. Say always. always. Say chooses grace. grace. Okay, you said it now. You've got to do it. Do you know, the grace isn't arrogant enough to assume it knows all the details and all the nuances and, and all the angles Grace seeks first to understand. Grace asks lots of questions rather than throwing around opinions. Now, we're required to, to discern what grace sees rather than judging what the natural eye sees. Think of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. Required to discern what grace sees, rather than judging what the natural eye sees. Anyone can do that, and most do. Just go on social media and have a little wander around. You'll find plenty of that. Number three. These are reasonably random. 
Grace gives others the grace we ourselves expect and would dearly love to receive. You know, there is a tendency in human nature to demand grace for me, but judgment and consequences for everyone else. Have you noticed that? And hence, in this situation, the golden rule applies. Give the grace to other people that you would dearly love them to give back to you. And do you know what? This in itself, if we'll just embrace that, this will stand us out from the ungrace world. Number four, grace releases people from the weight of guilt. Think of religion. Grace releases people from the weight of guilt to facilitate change, not the other way around. The other way around is this, if, if you will change, then and only then will we lift off you the burden of guilt. Do you know, religion is about behaviour modification. The gospel is about heart transformation. Satan attempts to accuse and belittle and crush. Religion piles on condemnation. But the gospel produces conviction. And do you know what? Conviction is the Holy Spirit's job, not ours. Do you know what? We'd be much better off if we stuck to our own job description, which was agents of grace. Number five, what does grace do? What does grace look like? Grace forgives 70 times, seven times, and gives up the right for revenge. Amen. You know, it does so happily and confidently, leaving all of that in the Lord's hands. You know, grace, grace is an empowerment to let go. And grace is the precursor to unprecedented peace and joy. Number six, when people think of us, one of the first words that comes into their thoughts is grace. And as we've already discussed, in a kind of one-way kind of way, as we've already discussed, that's sadly not always the case. To which I say, let's change that. Let's change that. What do you think of when you think of the barn, everyone? Grace. Number seven, what does grace look like in our culture? It's demonstrated by consistent outpourings of kindness, of welcome and acceptance and inclusion. So the grace doesn't lose sight of truth, not at all. It's just very sensitive how it uses it. I know grace is self-perpetuating. We model it. We saturate people with it. And slowly but surely it spreads throughout our culture. I tell you what, simple statement. If everyone was kind all the time, the world would be a very different place, wouldn't it? Number eight, nearly there on this list. Grace recognises that people are on a journey... And our job is simply to help them move forward. You know, grace meets people where they are right now rather than they demand 
that they start from where we are right now. You know, don't forget, we were probably there once too. Have you noticed this? People respond far better to carrot than stick. Respond so much better to encouragement than discouragement. That can't just be me, everybody. They respond so much better to a helping hand than a disparaging glare, if you know what I mean. Number nine, what does grace look like? People in a mess feel at home. To which if I was cheeky, I'd say, that's why you all like you. You lot are smiling so much this morning. (laughs) Now, this really irritated the Pharisees. They were so irritated how true this was around Jesus that people in a mess just felt right at home. So grace isn't afraid of mess. Grace recognises it as inevitable and accepts mess cleaning as its calling. Grace allows people to fail. It doesn't look down on them or write them off. Instead, it reaches down and picks them up. Again, think of Jesus and that poor woman caught in adultery. And therefore, you know, as agents of grace, we become part of people's solutions rather than piling on to their problems. And number 10, the last one, what does culture look, what does grace look like, feel like in a culture? Number 10, it challenges ungrace. It just chases it out. Remember that scene of Jesus in the temple courts with his whip turning over the tables of those traders who are exploiting the poor? Jesus chased ungrace out with a whip. Jesus corrected the Pharisees at every turn. So I say this, let's work together to cultivate and work and turn that soil so we can pluck out all of those ungrace weeds and thorns. If people are demonstrating ungrace, call them on it. Okay, so if that's, that, if that's what the culture looks and feels like, what, what are going to be the results of that? I wish I had more time this morning to, to delve into this. I'm going to summarise it as, I'm going to summarise it as the sweet fragrance of Jesus. I would say that that aroma should hit people's spiritual noses as they walk in through the front door. You know, that fragrance, that aroma is is hugely attractive, drawing people to the love of God. You know, grace is, is both the inspiration to change and the agent of transformation. So first thing, this place should be redolent with grace. It should be filled with grace. It should be the fragrance, the aroma of this place. People walking down the street, as it were, should be drawn to it because they know that grace lives here. The second result, and I think this is powerful, is, do you know what? People flourish in an environment of grace. Do you know, God wants you to flourish. Just humour me for a second, just nudge gently. 
graciously, the person next to you would say, God wants you to flourish. Isn't that right? Well, do you know what? In an environment of grace, that's exactly what happens. In an environment of grace, leaders lead better. In an environment of grace, servants serve more willingly and more cheerfully. In an environment of of grace, people are just more generous. In an environment of grace, people are bolder. That's coming down the line of this culture of the boldness thing. In that environment, people are bolder. You know, in an environment of grace, people are more creative because they're not afraid of being shot down all the time and criticised. People are more forgiving because that's the culture. And so people feel more comfortable and safe because they're now in a soil that hasn't got all these thorns and rocks and weeds suffocating them. I would say this, grace is the point of difference. Grace is what made Jesus stand out from the crowd. No, grace is a thing that will make us stand out from the world. Amen. Just, just very quickly, I want to look at some, some red flags. What are the red flags that we're losing in a little bit? That, that we're slipping or, or failing? What are the potential weeds and thorns that might grow in our garden if we don't pluck them out? Just very quickly, slightly short list. Number one is I find myself in a clique. I look around and I see people standing on their own and it doesn't bother me enough. Number two, I start becoming concerned at how judgmental I've become. So I've been there. It's dangerous. It's no good for anyone. You know, that that judgmental attitude can can come for a variety of reasons, but it's detrimental to your spiritual health. And I'd say if you find yourself in that place ever, take it to the Lord. It might be an indicator that something in you needs to change. Alternatively, it might be a sign that the Lord wants to move you on to something or, or, or somewhere different. But I'd say this, if you've become overly judgmental, if, if now all you can see is the weeds and the thorns and the criticisms, if that's you, I'd encourage you to engage with both of those two possibilities. Take it to the Lord. Number three, red flag number three, my eyebrows rise when someone who isn't just like me walks into the room. (laughs) Number four, these are deadly serious, laugh at me. Number four, when our communication becomes us and them, red flag. Number five, when I become critical of people who are not as far along the journey as me. And so I start to lose my compassion. Number six is when I can only see people's behaviour and can no longer see their heart. Red flag. When, when, When hate for sin shouts louder than love for sinner. Again, think of Jesus and the woman caught in adultery. 
just a little, little, I've been reading through the Deuteronomy at the moment, going through the Old Testament. You know, it's, it's very prescriptive, isn't it? The law, the legalism, you know, the consequence. It's quite tough, some of it. Stone them. Stone them. You know, and I think as Jesus, Jesus, three and a half years of ministry, and what Jesus did was he, he was taking them on a transformationary journey from Old Covenant, Old Testament into New. He had to take them on this journey out of law and into grace. And so Jesus, he took them along and he acted it out and he taught them and he told stories and he demonstrated it and he hands on. And he shifted us from old covenant law into New Testament grace. Anyone else pleased about that? Where was I? Number seven. Okay, red flag. When being right is more important to me than being kind. Yikes. Number eight. When I've, last one. When I view different as wrong, value conformity above diversity and my preference my preference above other people's eternal destinies all of those are red flags that we've started to slip from that culture of grace and we have some weeds and thorns that we have to pull up okay got through that quickly that was okay so what to do what to do you know, if this is our dream, if we've, got to, if we've got to generate, we've got to work this culture that's going to allow all that we long to happen to grow, what do we do? And the answer is, let's keep working this culture. Let's keep turning that soil. Let's keep, keep pulling out the weeds. Let's keep watering and fertilising that soil. Let's keep analysing how we're doing. Let's keep looking in the mirror. Let's keep prioritising grace. Let's keep... Teaching grace. You know, as leaders, we talk about these kinds of things over and over and over. I'd say this, be on the lookout for ungrace and call it out. And I'd say repeatedly examine the kindness of your own heart. Practically, what can we do? Well, I'd say this, let's make sure that we are the most welcoming church we could possibly be. Turn to the person next to you with a soppy look and say, I love you, with the love of the Lord. Okay, so everyone's received a warm welcome today. That's good, we've done that. So let's make sure that we are not just welcoming in theory in our own heads, but we are welcoming in reality. This does not mean smothering our guests to death. But it does mean shining the light and the life and the love of Jesus in a genuine and authentic and a caring way. You know, sometimes that means respecting space. It always means the warmth of a smile. You know, someone who's quite new to the church, I don't think they're here this morning, so it doesn't matter, said to me, do you know what one of the things they've really enjoyed about being people here? He's loved the fact is that people look him in the eye and smile. He says you go to many other places and as people are walking by, they kind of duck their heads and, and evade your gaze. You know, two or three encounters like that will make you feel unwanted really quick. 
So let's be welcoming. Let's be inclusive. Always looking for ways to draw people in. Let's not be cliquey. Train yourself to lift your head and scan the room. And do you know what? If you're full of Jesus, who needs a little bit of what you've got? Who needs a little dose of grace today? And I'd like to say this morning, huge thank you to those people who do that every single week. When it would be more comfortable to stick in your holy huddles and just have nice cushy chats with your best friend. But like Jesus, you are out looking for lost people you can find. Uncomfortable people you can make feel at home. Lonely people to whom you can give that sense of value. So the people who do that every week, I want to say well done. And I want to say thank you. I want to say a large thank you today to our car park team and our welcome team and our coffee team. If I, if I could just ask Stuart to cover Julie's ears just for a second. Do you know what? It's not about the coffee. Oh, well, it is. You know what I mean. It is. Actually, it's about the value that it communicates. I know Julie knows that. We've had this conversation. Do you know, car parking is not about stopping dings in the car park, although we don't particularly want those. It's not about trying to ram as many people as we possibly can into the tight space. It's about showing we care. It's about showing that you matter. That the little things that matter to you matter to us. Now, I reckon that everyone who comes to church should have at least 20 hellos, 30 handshakes, 40 smiles, and a hundred cringy Christian hugs. <laughs> Why? <laughs> Why? Because we all need grace in a graceless world. You know, we get discouraged and rejected and crushed all week. In here, it should be radically different. Now, as far as I know, Darren might correct me, no one has yet died of grace sickness. I can't stand that place. There's just too much grace. I wish I got told off more. I wish I wasn't made to feel so special. So a little more discouragement would just make me feel at home. Now let's choose to look through the eye of grace. Let, let's repeatedly speak Words of grace. We had Pete Reed here on, on Sunday night. If you, if you weren't here, I strongly encourage you to listen to that message. It can and will change your life. And he said, choose to be the voice of heaven. There's three voices. You know, whatever we do, let's not be the voice of hell. Okay, I really would rather not be the voice of earth. It's kind of like a dripping tap and discouraging and graceless. We have the opportunity to be the voice of heaven to the people around us. Right. Now, wrapping up now. Two, two of my favourite words are the words invitation and the words opportunity. Let's ask this question. What are people out there 
want and what do they need? Think for a second about your unsaved neighbour or sister or work colleague. What do they want and what do they need? Is it yet another person telling them they're wrong? Or is it someone showing them grace in a graceless world and kindness in an unkind world and hope in a hopeless world? For sure, eventually a sinner needs to be told they're a sinner. That's part of the gospel package. But is it radical to suggest that we show some grace first? Show them what they're missing. Show them what they could have. And then when we point out, or as we've always said, already said, when the Holy Spirit points out how much they need Jesus' saving grace, they'll know exactly who to speak to and where to turn. You know, God invites the sinner into grace. And our culture of grace is about invitation. And you know, for us, we have such an opportunity. Because I'm convinced that grace is, can be, and should be our point of difference. Let me read that verse again. Colossians 4 verse 5. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation, so much of what we do is about the words that we speak. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. So church, what an opportunity. An opportunity to be grace in a world of ungrace. Let's do that. Let's be that. Jesus certainly did. So my final question for you today, is there anyone out there who'd like to sign up to be an agent of grace?